Our study today, as we continue in 1 Thessalonians, uh, continues that theme. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read from 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Speaking through the Apostle Paul, this is the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we pray you will encourage us. Help me to be clear. Help us to be attentive as you teach us. Help us to think about the ways that we should change our own lives in response to your truth, we ask for Jesus' name, amen. Two topics that are almost sure to draw people's attention and curiosity are death and the end of the world. Think about how many movies have been made dealing with the end of the world and people go watch those movies. There are movies for adults and there are movies for kids now even, dealing with those subjects. And it's not just movies that want us to think about the end of the world. Higher education, the media wants our focus on the end of the world as well. I saw a headline this week from the New York Times saying that scientists say the Arctic climate is warming, glaciers are melting faster, and the ocean levels are rising. I saw that headline this week, but it was actually taken from May 30th, 1947. So people have been talking about a coming crisis for a long time. As we think about death, as the culture thinks about the end of the world, there's a fear, there's a wonder, there's a sadness, there's a confusion, there's a curiosity. But for us as Christians, there are two more words we could add to that list. God wants us to have a confidence and a certainty as well. There are questions your kids are going to ask. There are questions your neighbors might ask you about death or about the end of the world that you don't have answers to. But there are some things we can be confident about. Jesus wanted his disciples to know about the end. We know that that was his desire because he gave a message. We call it the Olivet Discourse on the, um, the last week of his life on earth. He specifically focused on the end of the temple, the end of time, the restoration, and the kingdom. 
And then in the New Testament, we have one book specifically dedicated to that, which is the book of Revelation. So you have dedicated sections. You also have throughout the Old and the New Testament prophecies and teachings concerning life after death and and, and the restoration of Israel and the end of God's program on earth. Our study today is is one of those passages. It's interesting because, as you've been saying, the Thessalonians were a, a new church, a young church. You expect a lot of exhortation, but we're coming into a section that's dealing with the end times. We're starting today. Today will be more of an introduction to the topic But we're going to be on the topic all the way through verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul wants the Thessalonian church to know something about life after death and about the future of Christ's plan. And before we get into the details of Paul's teaching, I want you to notice, I want us all to notice his pastoral heart. In terms of an outline, we're going to get to Paul's instruction, but just to start, we're going to talk about Paul's motivation. That can be the first heading in your mind or in your notes, the motivation. In speaking of Paul's motivation, I'm talking about the heart, not just that Paul had for the church, but the heart that we should have for one another. It's an important motto, especially for Christian leaders, pastors, Christian teachers, and even parents. Paul's instruction, we'll see, is concerned with those who have died, but his motivation is pastoral care. You see that in verse 13. You see it also in verse 18. So the first verse and the last verse of this little section. His two main concerns. The first concern is a doctrinal one. He wants to teach them something. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, we, speaking of his team, we do not want you, Thessalonians, to be uninformed. I think the King James uses the word ignorant, which may be a better translation, though it's not as flattering. Ignorant means you don't know something. You don't know the truth. You, you, you don't understand something. And so Paul, to correct the ignorance of the church, writes to teach them. That's his doctrinal concern. He wants, to, he wants them to know something about Christian doctrine. But secondly, in connection to his doctrinal motivation, we have his emotional motivation. He cares about the way the people feel and the way that they respond to what they see going on around them. The purpose of teaching them is not just so they would know the truth. The purpose is that in knowing the truth, they would not, verse 13 says, grieve as others do who have no hope. So the verse ends by talking about hopelessness. That hopelessness is connected to grief. We we know there's a grief that's common to all men. Jesus grieved. But but worse than, than common grief, there is a hopeless grief. And that's what Paul does not want the church to experience. That's his emotional motivation. You skip down to verse 18 and, and you see the motivation as well. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if you jump over to verse 11 of chapter 5, he says it again. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He doesn't intend end times theology, eschatology, to simply be an academic exercise. He says it to he teaches so that he can comfort, so that he can bring joy. And he intends the people to keep reminding one another about these truths so they would encourage one another. Again, so there's a doctrinal motivation, there's an emotional motivation. 
He wants to give them hope. He wants to spare them a specific kind of grief. And to do that, he needs to teach them. He needs to inform them. A true pastoral heart has both a doctrinal concern and an emotional concern. And along those same lines, we could say the same for a mature Christian. A mature Christian, someone you would admire for their life when there are difficulties and the way they respond, if they have a, a healthy life, that's going to be a product of healthy doctrine. That's one of the principles verse 13 shows us. People, on the other hand, who live without hope, people who are overwhelmed with grief, do not have a strong, healthy understanding or acceptance of Christian doctrine. Our world is filled with people who are looking for comfort and hope in sad times. And we as Christians need to know that the truest and the most profound solution to sorrow or to anxiety is not going to be found in a bumper sticker or in a meme. You don't solve sorrow by ignoring the topic or avoiding a topic. You address it by flooding your mind and your heart with God's truth concerning that issue. There's a opportunity here to pause and think about our own life as we think about doctrine and emotions because there are people, and maybe you're on this side of the spectrum, who love doctrine, they care about doctrine, they want to teach doctrine, they want to fight for doctrine, but they don't really have a care to help others actually love and serve and rejoice in Christ. On the other hand, you have people, plenty of leaders, plenty of teachers, plenty of, of Christians who, who want to feel good. They want to help others feel good. They want to bring comfort to others. But that desire is not connected to true and healthy doctrine. Empty doctrine or empty emotional support is ineffective. And it's not what Jesus' church is supposed to be about. We need both. We, we care for people. We care for suffering. We want to give them hope. But that emotional concern needs to be tied to good doctrine. So when you comfort, whether it's yourself, when you comfort your children or your spouse or a neighbor, you need to make sure that you have and that you convey the right concern. You care for them as a person, but you also make sure you convey the right doctrine. We can't, as parents, just start making up answers to questions just so our kids feel better. Good doctrine a good heart, that's what honors Christ. That's what it means, to use the words of Ephesians, that's what it means to speak the truth in love. The truth is the doctrine, the love is the concern. We know the Thessalonian church, based on all our studies, is a loving church. One of the key characteristics of the church was their love. We just talked about it in the previous section, verses 9 through, through 12. Paul uh, praised them for their brotherly love and he exhorted them to grow more. He said, I want you to abound in this even more. And then he goes from that into this topic, which I think tells us that this is not an abrupt change. It, it, this section on the end times or eschatology is an extension of Paul's love for the church. And it's an example of how people love one another. What then is the specific problem that the Thessalonian church is dealing with? What is causing them grief or, or hopelessness? Look at verse 13 one more time. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So it's concerning the people who have died. That's what sleep refers to there. Obviously, sleep can refer to the normal activity, which we wish took up up to a third of our day. 
But in the scriptures, sleep is also used as a euphemism for death. I think if you know your Bible, you've seen that many times. Matthew 27 speaks of Jesus' death. And when he dies, it says the tombs were opened and many who were asleep came out. In Acts chapter 7, you read about Stephen. He is murdered by the mob. They're stoning him to death. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then it says, he fell asleep. He didn't go to sleep. Literally, he died. It's a euphemism. It's a nicer way to say he died. Acts 13 does the same. It says, David, he served the purpose of God in his own generation, and then he fell asleep. And there there are plenty of examples. I just want to make the point. Sleep is a way to referring is a way of referring to those who have died. Now, there are religious groups who take this idea of sleep and they apply it to the dead and say, oh, that's because when you die, your soul goes to sleep. They call it soul sleep. You die, you go into a blank existence, you're just sleeping until the next big thing on God's calendar. And you need to know that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach anything related to this concept of soul sleep. Hebrews 9, a very well-known passage, Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus pointed to that judgment in the story that he shared regarding the rich man and the poor man. Remember the poor man sitting at the the side of the table? He's only eating the crumbs or the piece of bread that fall off the table. Then there's a rich man who was clothed in luxurious clothing. They died. The rich man ends up in Hades being tormented. The poor man goes to be with Abraham. Their souls were not sleeping. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says the same thing in Philippians 1. He tells him, I I don't know what's better, to die or or stay alive. If I stay alive, I have ministry. I can serve the church. But if I die, he says, I will depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. There's no understanding of Paul that you actually go to some kind of soul sleep. And then you have Jesus' words to the repentant thief on the cross. He didn't say, you know, rejoice because life is rough today, but don't worry, tomorrow you're going to rest, you're going to be asleep. That's not what he said. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. One final reference just to help disprove this idea of soul sleep is Revelation chapter 6 when it describes the seven seals being opened of a scroll. And when the fifth seal is open, it said that uh, John had a vision of, of martyrs, those who had lost their lives because of their faith in the Lamb of God. And he says, they cried out to God for justice. When will you avenge us? When will justice come? The spirits of the dead are not asleep They go at the moment of death into divine judgment or to divine joy. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, from an earthly perspective, the word sleep makes sense because similar to sleep, at death, the physical body stops being active. Some parents, some of you don't mind having your kids go forward at a funeral to see the body. Some of you prefer your your young kids don't do that. Some of you might remember as a child seeing a dead body and sometimes kids will ask, is he sleeping because it looks like they are. So that's an an earthly explanation for the term, but there is a a more, I think, doctrinal explanation for the term and and why sleep is an appropriate word. The reason that it's appropriate is because sleep also points to something that is temporary. Generally speaking, when someone is sleeping, we expect them to wake up. And the same is true, according to scripture, 
with the dead. Eventually, that body will wake up. Eventually, that body will rise. Death is the word we use to speak of the separation between body and spirit. That's what death is. Your body stays here and the spirit departs. People will say, is it possible for God to die? And this is sort of the the theological concept of the mystery of the incarnation. In his own essence, no, God is spirit. He can't die. Death is for mortal beings. In becoming a man, Christ died. God experienced death because God, the, the, the son, took on a human body, became a man, and then experienced death. His body was separated from his spirit. But the condition of death is not permanent. What we, that separation of body and soul is not permanent, and the word sleep reminds us of that. Jesus, he made that point in, in John chapter 11. He said to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to wake him up. He's emphasizing that it's just, it's just temporary, and the disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, just leave him alone. He'll, he'll wake up. And Jesus said, no, I'm, he's dead. He was speaking figuratively, and, and they didn't get it. Lazarus' death was not going to be a permanent condition. That is the reality that the Thessalonian church doesn't fully understand. Like any church, there were people there in the church who had died, probably some for natural causes. It may have been due to persecution, but because of the, the people who had died among them, they grieved, and there was a kind of hopelessness in their grief. It's helpful to remember that this is predominantly a Gentile church. These are not people who were raised knowing and studying the Old Testament. They were raised with a Greek understanding of the afterlife, which isn't intended to provide comfort. But they are Christians, so they had been exposed to the elemental components of Christian faith. You can go back just for a moment to look at it one more time. Chapter one, verse nine, Paul describes the church there. He says, they, the other churches, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So you guys were a good church. You received us. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They knew that. Christ is going to return. He's going to remake the world. He will save us from God's eternal wrath. That's what the church was waiting for. But apparently, they had this belief that those who had already died were gonna miss out on that. So Jesus is gonna come back. He's gonna glorify his people. He's gonna transform the world. But they thought that transformation that Christ was going to bring is only going to affect those who are alive at the time. They may have thought that there were different layers or areas of of heaven. You know, there's one heaven for the people who had died. They go to heaven immediately. But there's a greater heaven for those who are alive when Christ comes. And so if someone dies before Christ comes and someone else is alive, they're going to be separated forever from each other and the first group from Christ. You can see how that kind of belief would produce grief. You are literally saying goodbye forever to those who have died. And the person who died would then never experience the the fullness of Christ's victory and his dominion over the earth. There there was no more hope in, in the full sense of it. That belief is wrong. 
The church's doctrine was deficient, and so their hope was deficient. And so Paul writes to correct it. Again, he wants to encourage them. He wants to comfort them. He wants to give them true hope. So he gives them true doctrine. So we go from his motivation now to his instruction. What is Paul's instruction concerning those who have already died? What does he want them to know? It starts in verse 14. One more time, it says there, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's a very simple argument he's making. There are two components to the verse. The first part is the premise. The second part is the conclusion. The premise is something we talk about almost every week, specifically on Easter last week. It's a a necessary and essential aspect of the Christian faith, which is very simply that Jesus died and rose again. Paul said, without that, you don't have the gospel. That's an essential component of the Christian faith. Jesus died and rose again. That's not new instruction. That's a reminder. You guys know that. Our translation, ESV says since. In the Greek, it is the word if, which is almost like it's being used rhetorically. Paul is asking him, you believe Jesus died, don't you? You believe he rose again. Isn't that what you believe? And, and the church would be you know, nodding along saying, yeah, 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 we believe that. Good. Okay. Since that's what you believe then you also have to believe that those who follow Christ are going to do the same thing. Jesus died and rose again, so those who trust in Christ are going to die and they will rise again. God is going to lead his people through the same process as the Lord. And and the main, he doesn't doesn't state it explicitly, but the main uh, connection between the premise and the conclusion is the believer's union with Christ. We're, We're united to him. The church is following in the footsteps of Christ. We do so in our life and we'll do so also in death. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead, he's gonna raise Jesus' followers from the dead. And just so you know, in verse 14, our translation uses the word bring. The word could also be translated lead, which I think would be a little better because the word doesn't necessarily indicate which direction they're being taken. So when you say you bring, it means he brings them, right? If you, if you send, you know, that's the opposite direction. The word doesn't imply. There's a lot of commentaries that say, well, he's talking about when you die, you know, he, your soul is brought to heaven. No, he's talking about when you're in heaven, Christ returns, he's gonna bring you back. I don't think Paul's trying to emphasize either one at this point. He's just saying you are being led by God. Just like God led his one and only son, he leads his people. God brought Christ's spirit up to heaven on the day that he died. Christ sent Christ's spirit back to his body on the third day. God was overseeing everything. God was in complete control of what was happening and he is in complete control over anyone who dies. There is one difference I wanna address. If you don't have an ESV, you probably noticed that the phrase in Jesus or through Jesus is in a different part of the sentence because the debate based on how it's written in in, in the Greek is, is that phrase through Jesus or in Jesus connected to the people who died or to God who who, who leads or who brings? In this case, I do disagree with the way the ESV translated. I think the New American got it right. I think the NIV also is more faithful. I, I think he's trying to say those who have died have fallen asleep through Jesus. You can, you can move it a little later in, in, in the ESV. And, and it's a very 
it's a small thing, but it's just a special reminder. When you die and you trust in Christ, you're not, Christ is not abandoning you. He's not, I'm with you till you die and you're gone. No, you, you die through Christ. You die in Christ, whether in life or death or whether in resurrection. When you belong to Christ, you're with him forever. And that's what he said at the end of the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is the message of verse 14. Since Jesus died and rose again, those who belong to Jesus and die will rise again. Just like God was watching over his one and only son, he'll watch over all of his adopted sons and daughters. Nobody's gonna be lost. Nobody's gonna be left behind in God's plan. Christ and his people are united in death and they will be united in resurrection. And to add to the certainty of what he's teaching them, Paul appeals to the greatest authority possible, which is the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul's not speculating. He's not making it up as he goes along. Look at verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That's a very common phrase, especially in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord the word of the Lord. God is speaking here. It expresses authority. It expresses certainty. The word of the Lord is powerful. The word of the Lord is sure. The word of the Lord is true. But it seems like this is something new for the church. You know, the other, when we studied other parts of the letter, he says, remember this, as I told you. Remember this, as I told you. He's taught them already, but he doesn't use that phrase here. There's no indication here that they have heard this already. It's possible that what he's about to say is a new teaching for the church. Some believe that this may have even been a new revelation that came to Paul or Silas after they left Thessalonica, but it's, it's the apostolic age. They're still receiving revelation. However, Paul got it. He's giving it to them now because of their deficient theology. Again, his goal, though, is comfort. He wants them to know this is new. You may not have heard this yet, but it comes with the full authority of Christ. So here's the teaching. Once again, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Precede simply means to go before in a more figurative way, it means to, to have some advantage over. Yeah, I don't know, I, I read a story, uh, what's been last week, I guess, I can't remember the city now, I think in the Midwest, a city had an Easter egg hunt for kids. The next day they come out, I think on their Facebook page and apologize that we're so sorry for what happened. We're not gonna do an Easter egg hunt next year because they dismiss kids by ages and the youngest children would go with their parents and then they had adults shoving kids out of the way to go get eggs. This is what happens in America. We understand, but what happens in small ways, right? I'm at a funeral reception. There's like 100 people here. It looks like there's enough donuts for like 40. I better get in line. I better go first. Otherwise, I'm not going to get a donut, right? We all know that. That's kind of the point of this word. There's a, we want to go first. He says, no, 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 no. Those who have died aren't going to miss out on anything when compared to the Christians who are alive. Those, of the, those who, who, who believe in Christ aren't going to be bumping dead Christians out of the way. The dead Christians aren't going to end up in the nosebleeds. Like, oh, well, we missed it. You know, we're here, but we're in the back of the line. It doesn't matter. Living or dead, it doesn't make a difference when Christ comes. There's no advantage if you're alive. And Paul, just like us, 
doesn't know when Christ is going to come. And that may be part of the reason he uses the first person. He says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. I think that's an expression of his hope. Paul was hoping, just like we're hoping, it would happen in his own lifetime. He wanted, that's the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Paul emphatically tells the Thessalonians, there is no way, in the Greek, it's the strongest way you could say no. There is no way we're going to proceed. We're going to have an advantage over those who have died. We're not going to step in front of them. Your dead Christian brothers and sisters aren't going to miss out on anything. There's no need to grieve. There's no need to lose hope. And then beginning in, verses, in verse 16 and continuing to verse 17, Paul lays out exactly what the next steps are on God's timetable. Jesus is coming for his people and God wants you to know what's going to happen. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. I hope it's a, a, an eager thing, an exciting thing. The, the end of the world, we're going to talk about the rapture, fascinating stuff. God wants us to know what's going to happen, but as we continue on this topic through uh, a good part of chapter five, I want you just to keep something in mind. God does not tell us about life after death or about the end of the world simply to satisfy our curiosity. He tells us these things because he wants us to take his word seriously. We need to remember for ourselves and for the world around us, this life does not go on forever. One day, you and the people you love, the people you know, they will see Christ for themselves. They'll see him either by their death or by his coming. And at that moment, they will enter into eternal joy or eternal judgment. The difference is whether or not that person has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. This world is going to last exactly as long as Christ has ordained. And so is your life. None of us know how long that's going to be. What we do know is that Christ will be your judge. This is the message the church has taught ever since the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul, Acts 17, stands in the middle of the marketplace there in Athens, and he said this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus is coming again to judge the world. If you bow before Christ now, today, in humility, he'll save you. He'll show you mercy. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. Like like we saw today, he'll be with you forever. He will rescue you from the eternal wrath of God. But if you refuse to bow and surrender your life to Christ now, then when he comes, you will bow, but it will be in judgment and in agony. And that's not what God wants for us. That's not what we as a church want for you. We want you to come to know, yes, a holy God, a God of jealousy, a God of vengeance, but also a God of mercy and salvation, a God who wants a church filled with comfort and encouragement 
because he saved them in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what that means or what it is to follow Christ, what it is to be forgiven of sin, you can talk to any one of our church members. We'd be glad to do that. Anyone you see on stage, we will tell you more about honoring Christ. We'll help you grow in your own faith. It's not, there's, no, there's no hurdle. There's no hoops. You've got to do A, B, C, D, and then I'll save you. It's, you need to come before him, recognize your sin, call out for mercy, and God will save you. And in the end, we won't, we're not going to be terrorized because the world is ending. We're going to be grateful that our final salvation has come. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth. We pray you give us a growing heart, one for doctrine and a growing heart for others. We want to blend those things to teach, to love, to serve. Help us as, as parents to teach our children the truth. We have the hope that this world is missing. They want affirmation in so many other things. They want to be affirmed for who they are rather than seeking hope and confidence in who you are. We thank you that Christ has died for sin. We thank you that he has risen. And we pray you fill us with that hope continually. We thank you that as he was raised in victory, so will all those who trust in you. Give us an an urgency with this truth and give us a joy and a hope. Help us walk in holiness and in confidence despite the rejection we see in this world. We ask in Christ's name, amen.